The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Did you know that close to 2 million women have left the workforce since last February alone? Today's guest, Reshma Sojani, could not handle watching 30 years of progress for women in the labor market participation go out the window over the last nine months without getting involved, which is why she is leading the national conversation around women and unpaid labor with her call out to President Biden for a Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma Sojani is the founder of Girls Who Code, the international nonprofit organization working to close the gender gap in technology and to change the image of what a computer programmer looks like and does. The organization has reached 500 million people and 300,000 girls in all 50 U.S. states, Canada, India, and the U.K. She is the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, and the New York Times bestseller, Girls Who Code, Learn to Code and Change the World. Reshma's TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 5 million views and has sparked a worldwide discussion about how we're raising our girls. Reshma, it is so nice to meet you. I'm a huge fan of all that you are doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Where am I finding you? New York City, the best city in the world. You know what? I actually just went to New York City. It was my first trip after over a year with no travel to go visit my in-laws who were both vaccinated. And I have to say, having been in LA for the last year on lockdown, the spirit of that city was infectious. I always say like New York City is lit right now. Yeah. People are like ready to like get it and get going. It really was. It was like such a commitment. I would see these women. We actually stayed uptown so that we didn't have to take a taxi or get on the subway to go back and forth and see my in-laws with my kids. And my husband and I were so in awe of the commitment that some of these women had to having a glass of wine. They were literally bubbled up like Nanook of the North and in these like sort of little plastic sheets, but just sitting there like frigidly with a glass of wine. And we were like, that's commitment. That was me all winter long to like have one girl's night a week where I was like uniqlo'd up, like no joke. But yeah, I think that's yours. Like we, I mean, you want to be in the city because like you love the energy and you want to be out and you want to see people and you want to feel it. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into anything else, I want to say something about a post that you recently put up, and I think it was in regards to a girl's night. Mm -hmm. And you were really excited about doing a girl's night, right? And you had all this anticipatory excitement. And then maybe did it not feel so good when you got there? No, no. Because I felt the same thing in New York. I felt like in my spirit and my bones, I was like, this is incredible. I'm back to who I am. I'm a person again. And then I was in my hotel room, like 
looking for my Xanax. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> Why am I feeling so anxious? Because reentry is hard. I felt anxious the entire weekend. Mm-hmm. For so long, we have been in our sweats, in our homes, and the idea of leaving our homes, being with other people for a sustained amount of time is like kind of scary. Even when you're an extrovert and you're like, you think you're dying for it and you want it and you need it. When you get there, you're like, okay, wait, I feel a little weird. I want to go home. It resonated with me so much because I felt the same way. It was like ostensibly I felt safe. I was not aware of any real contributing anxiety or thoughts that were making me feel that way. But I really felt like I had an ally when I saw your post. So how are you doing? How are you really? Oh, you know, I'm doing good. Or I'm sure to say I'm doing fine. I think like this is my last week at Girls Who Code. Uh, I'm stepping down as CEO. Best decision I made. I'm in love with my new CEO. She's phenomenal. And I don't believe that anyone should be running something forever. But change is hard. You know, I've had a certain life for the past 10 years in a certain schedule and a certain routine. I love routines and that's about to change. It's going to be interesting to see how I feel about that. And, you know, your identity when you're everyone's brush with Johnny, CEO of Girls to Code, like not anymore. I'm curious to see how that's going to feel. And it's hard to really feel things in the middle of COVID, mm-hmm. whether it's a disappointment, even when it's joy. So that's going to be interesting. Right. So what contributed to that decision? COVID. You know, I think this year was really tough and hard, but I also like had to rebuild my organization and I really saw how messed up our world is and that I need to be in the next fight. And that I had this amazing partner, Tarika, who's my COO, and she was ready. And I knew I was holding on and I Mm -hmm. knew that it was time that I had kind of outgrown my current job description and that it was time. But that like part of what I was doing, especially for the past couple of years, was like reinventing my job description because I was too scared to figure out what to do next. Like I'm 45. I'm not having a middle-aged crisis, I don't think. But it's much harder to figure out what you want to do next at this stage than it was when I was in my 20s. Like this is like right. it feels like it's a high stakes, big decision. Well, of course, because in a way it's like starting over, right? You've built something, you have it at a place where you feel comfortable for somebody else to take the reins. And you also know, I think like so many of us, you probably have known for a while that you've outgrown your situation and it's taking you to this place to finally get the nerve up to say few contributing factors. It's now or never. You see how precious time is. You also have a new sense of what identity looks like. And I think that that's been one of the biggest blessings of this time is really so many people have been stripped of the external markers that constructed their identity for so long. And so it required a really kind of hard look at what do I value? What do I want to do with my time? How am I going to best contribute? And like you said, this feels a little bit like everything that precipitated you starting that, right, was about seeing a need for something and not to say that you fulfilled that need, but maybe you've taken it as far as you can. And it's time for you to figure out what your next problem is to solve. Last year was a real also conversation about power. Who has Mm -hmm. it? Who doesn't? How do people get it? And I also realized like I have to give someone else a chance to have this powerful position. That's part of leadership is not holding on to it. And is giving somebody else a chance that I had grown and learned 
so much and had so many opportunities in this role and that it felt really joyful to like give that to someone else. And it felt scary at the same time. And both two things can be true. But you are right. There were a lot of departures this year. A lot of people stepped off of their roles and, you know, figuring out what they want to do next. And I think it was like the moment, like it was like kind of like, if you weren't going to do it now, then I don't know what to tell you. Do you think that you feel a pressure to find something right away? Or are you comfortable in the space of taking time and figuring it out? So I think for me, I was going to take the time. And then I kind of wrote this op-ed on Marshall Plan for Moms, and it just blew up. And it felt very reminiscent in times 10, actually, which is shocking of when I started Girls Who Code. And so I'm like, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing. I'm very spiritual. Like I know what my dharma is. I know what God has put me on this earth to do. And so I pay attention to the signs and I feel like the signs are very clear. So I feel like I'm right back in really passionate, really excited and building another movement. Right. Well, I, I heard somebody say something interesting about leadership recently too, which is that during these times, it requires a certain amount of energy, right? So you have to have so much fuel, so much passion, so much excitement, which not to say you don't have that anymore for girls who code, but you're at a different stage with that. And like you said, something that feels very timely. And also it needs as many kind of soldiers on the ground as possible. Yeah. And so this is your new calling. All right. So let's dive in because we're going to get into the Marshall Plan and everything else. I think that you will have a very interesting take on this about the notion of having it all. And if you subscribe to that. It's a lie. No, I don't subscribe to it. I don't think you have it all. I don't even know what that means. It, it means something different to you, right? Than society would have you believe yeah. it to dictate. What I mean is like, I don't even know what that means to me today. Like, I think what it meant to me when I was growing up as the daughter of refugees, having it all meant being pedigreed, having an Ivy League degree, probably being, you know, married to like a dashing Indian man that my parents approved of, to having like, you know, 2.5 kids, you know, in a beautiful house. And again, I think having it all were all the things that were defined by my mother, probably. And then as I was building those things on my belt, I was like, why aren't I not happy? I went to Yale. I went to Harvard, be it that I applied three times before I got in, but I, I you know, sucked. You're wearing the shirt to prove it. I believe you went there. <laughs> but like none of those things really mattered to me once I got them. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't happy. I realized that I had, I just had the wrong definition of what was going to make me happy. And I think a lot of us do. And that's also something that evolves with time, right? And the more experience you have and the more, like you said, you get those spiritual callings and you learn to trust in listening to them. I think it comes with time. I think it comes with getting those things and doing the self-analysis. I've, I've always been someone who's like really into self-growth. So whether it's, you know, self-help books, whether it's, you know, seeing a therapist, whether it's seeing a healer, right? I've always liked to get in my head. You know, why are you feeling that way? What are you thinking about? Why isn't this making you feel that way? And, and, you know, doing the introspection. And so I was always cognizant when things are working out for me, like, why aren't I not happy? And I'm someone who gets off on failure. I actually feel like the most alive when things don't work out for me. And I know that that's a problem because I know I'm also not able to really celebrate the wins. You know, if the exact same experience somebody else is having, including my husband, he will just be like joy just spilling off his face. There'll be like champagne bottles. We'll go sell. You know what I mean? He sell every birthday. He celebrate. Like if I don't throw a party for him, it's like, forget about it. Like he takes so much joy in that. 
I always think I want to come back as him in my next life. I'm exactly the opposite. Like I could be sitting there winning the Nobel Peace Prize and I'll be like, bah, humbug. You know, like mm-hmm. why didn't I win my election for Congress? And I'm cognizant of it. And so it's something that I definitely work on. Let's talk about the idea of designing a life that suits you and not the other way around. I know that you started as an attorney and an activist, and then obviously you mentioned running for Congress. Did you have a notion of what you wanted your life to look like? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, my father would read to me these books about like Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. So I I always wanted to be like an activist, a change maker. Uh, I was always moved by people's pain and poverty and race and gender. Ever since I was little, like I led my first march when I was 13. You know, I was on college campuses, like protesting. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois. Okay. So I grew up in this like Midwest town. We're one of the few Indian families that were there. You know, this week has been really painful in terms of the Asian American, you know, hate and violence because so many of us have so many stories. Right we grew up experiencing and have just really kind of hidden deep inside of us. But that was very much the things that I was moved by and the things that I was passionate about. And, but I graduated $300,000 in student loan debt. So I, I was a corporate lawyer and I'm like, what, how did this happen? Is this my life? Like, is this it? Like I'm so off path and I'm so stuck. And so part of, you know, I think running for Congress got me unstuck, you know, even though I lost my race. Right. So in your TED talk, you talk about the experience of running for Congress and the subsequent loss as the first time. And I think you were 33 years old at the time, right? As the first time that you felt that you'd made a decision where you felt brave. And I wonder, because it sounds like obviously you're a very high achieving woman, whether or not that was not the route for you in terms of igniting your soul's passion, you were still having a successful career. So when you talk about bravery, I wonder if it was that you felt unprepared for that role or what made you feel like that was a brave decision for you? Bravery is like when you don't know the outcome. I think for most of the things before that I did, I knew how it was going to play out. Mm -hmm. Right. So I didn't really pursue things that I didn't know that they were going to work out. Or if I did pursue them, I was going to make sure like Yale, I applied three times before I got in. I was like crazy obsessed with getting in. And so I didn't allow myself to fail. Every year I would rearrange my life to apply again, to apply again, to apply again, take the LSAT again. So for Congress, you know, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So it was the first time that I really put myself in a position to not have control over what was going to happen. And I remember when I was running, people would say to me, what are you going to do if you lose? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to win, right? Like it wasn't even like an option or a thing. You know, on my election day, when I lost, I didn't even have a concession speech. So you were that confident? I was that confident because I had never considered it to really be an option. And I remember when I was on my election day, standing there in the party and I just, I wouldn't cry. And I wanted to cry so bad. I'm like standing on this podium. Everybody around me is like bawling. And I'm just like doing my thing and be like, I'm going to do it again. And I was just remember coming back to my hotel room and just collapsing and just bawling. But I, I, I really, the next morning when I woke up, it was like, I've never felt like that in my life. But I also realized that I wasn't broken. And that was another like, wait a minute now like drink a lot of margaritas and figure out like what I'm actually going to do next. And that this isn't just like the end of me was a big aha moment. 
And it sounds like that's what ignites you, right? From what you said earlier, is that you feel inspired by a sense of failure, even though I guess we could say, sure, you failed, you didn't win the race, but you also were incredibly young at the time. You were the first Indian American woman to run. So there was a lot that you had accomplished. You didn't win that particular race. Sure. But it put you into a whole new stratosphere of conversation. Yeah, it did. But I think I also made that happen. Mm -hmm. Meaning like, I think a lot of people will try things that doesn't work out and then they hide Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of shame and failure. And I remember even seeing people that following say that and they'd be like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I hate, there's nothing more I hate when people feel sorry for me. And so I think that that for a lot of people, then they just go into a completely different field or they like put it away and they don't try. Whereas I just put myself right back out there and maybe I didn't fully realize it, but part of it was like, okay, you're not going to like me. And cause you don't think I'm good enough. I'm going to show you, you know what I mean? I'm going to show you what I can do. Right. And you know, I built girls, you know, ran lost again. And then I built girls who code and like, you know, the story, you know, is history from there, but, but it is part of that like defiance of like, Oh, okay. You, you don't think I can do this. Okay. Let me, let me show you that I can do it. And so I still, I think in the beginning was trying to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Now I want to live my fullest potential. Like I want to live the life in its fullest way. And I think the thing, the reason why I feel very obsessed with failure is that if you don't fail, you can't get great. And I want to be great. If you don't mess up, if you don't do it wrong, you know, it's like when I think about, I used to never watch myself if I was on TV, I'd get really embarrassed. But now I make myself and I'm like, okay, did that resonate? Did that land? How did that sound? And part of it is I have somebody who's saying, ugh, you weren't great. You were off. And you have to be willing to hear that. You have to be actually seeking that type of feedback because you want to get really good at something. Well, of course, Beyonce does that. You know, she watches all of her performances. Every single one. Because the and same with Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you see athletes really do this. Really is 10,000 hours. I mean, even with speeches, what people don't realize is like, you're kind of supposed to give the same speech over and over and over again. It's like comedians. They tell the same joke over and over and over again. You figure out how does it land? When do I intonate? Like, how do I say it? Right. And it's, it is this idea of you're literally rehearsing, you're performing, right. And you're rehearsing kind of what's landing for people and what story's working and what intonation you're saying and how that's all coming together. But you have to do that inspection of yourself or introspection of yourself to learn that. You said in the TED talk that girls are socialized to be perfect and boys are socialized to be brave. And that resonated with me for a lot of reasons, obviously, as someone who often doesn't want to do things if I don't think that I can do them well. And then more importantly, as the mother of an eight-year-old daughter who doesn't want to inadvertently hinder her from pursuing something based on old conditioning patterns that I have that I'm not even aware of. So what have you found as you have studied this more? What are the things do you think that we have done even to ourselves as women, do you think? Well, one, I think the reason why this pattern is self-perpetuating is because they're just copying us. You know, when my book Brave Not Perfect came out, it was written for women. But a lot of women would grab it and like, oh, I love your book. I'm going to give it to my daughter. And I'm like, no, you read it. Mm-hmm. Because until you change, she's not right. going to change. She's just watching you. So when you stand in front of the mirror and you're like, does my butt look big? Or you critique the wrinkles on your face or you say something like, I can't believe I got that promotion. I, didn't, I must have just gotten lucky. Like all of that, she's listening and she's copying. 
And so, you know, I think that the perfectionism starts in the beginning about like, you know, physical protection. We need to protect our daughters and our girls from physical harm in the way that we don't protect our boys. Like I watched my husband, I have two sons and my, my son, my husband just pushes them. You know what I mean? Like over for like kicks. Right. Right. I think like psychologically, right? He's. I love that because I thought you meant he motivates them. You know, he really inspires them. You're like, no, he like literally kicks them over for fun. Yeah, for fun, constantly. Yeah. And I don't think he would do that if they were girls. No, definitely not. It is just like the way we've been raised is the way we're raising our kids, right? He think in his mind, he's, oh, I got to toughen you up. I got to toughen you up. And so I think that physical coddling extends to psychological coddling. So probably around your daughter's age, she goes to a dance class. She sucked and she comes home crying, mommy, I never want to go to dance again. I'm just not good at it. You're like, don't worry, honey. Let's try gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if it's a boy and my, you know, my son comes back and I hated karate. My husband's like, oh, you're going again tomorrow twice. Right. Twice. Cause you're going to get tough. We have to stop that psychological, you know, coddling. to me in some ways, the psychological coddling is more dangerous because it then makes you less resistant and resilient, you know, to failure and to rejection, which I think is key. You know, in this moment, this pandemic, I, I'm like the call that everybody calls at two o'clock in the morning because literally every horrible thing has ever always happened to me. You know, I feel like I'm a very strong armor and I'm tough, but for a lot of my friends, it's been very hard for them because COVID-19 is the worst thing that's ever happened to them mm-hmm. and they don't know how to handle it. And so it's really, if anything has ever shown how dangerous it is to not build this resiliency with our girls and this armor, it's been this moment. So I do think that part of it is you putting yourself out there. So whatever it is you may be afraid of, Sarah, right? Is like, maybe it's like, surf, for me, it's like surfing. It's like you're dragging your daughter oh, with you to the beach. Yeah, forget about like, surfing. I'm terrified of yeah. sharks. But watch me, you mm-hmm. know? And I, and I think it's like, in my son's like that. He's like, brave mom, brave mom. He basically is like, watch me. I'll, I'll go, I'll go bungee jumping first. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that that's the dynamic that you want to create, you know, with your daughter that you're like braving each other up. Yeah. On a personal level, I grew up with three brothers and my dad actually used to like offer us $20. Whoever wins gets $20. It would have behooved me potentially Reshma to have been slightly coddled. I don't feel like that's ever happened, but you do have as a mother, those protective tendencies. But at the same time, I'm like, Tiger Woods, mom would have made him go back. You know what I mean? I want to raise a champion, like not some sissy. Let's do this. What about checking on your strong friends? Cause you're talking about you're the call, but do you feel like, do you ever have an outlet for yourself? No, I know. And I, I, it's not good. Right. No, because I'm very not in touch with my feelings then. And then sometimes you'll just like cry. Right. Out of like nothing. Yeah. And I, I feel that way this year much. I'm much more sensitive and it, it, like I'll get in a fight with a friend and it will just bother me or my husband and I will get in an argument and they'll just sit with me. And I'm like, why am I feeling so emotional about something that you should just like jump off my back, whatever the term is. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing, right? It's a good thing in that, like, you can deal with life's punches and you can be people's rocks, but it's a bad thing and and it's hard to tap into that sense, right? It's a little bit like just because I carry it well doesn't mean it's not heavy. Yeah, I I really got a dose of that, I think. For me, you know, I had 10 years of infertility and miscarriage, more miscarriages Mm -hmm. than I'd like to count. And for a lot of times, I would say there are people who are just like, oh, Rush was just a bitch. 
And it wasn't that like I was in a party and didn't want to talk to anybody. I just was like holding so much. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had my first child that I was like, oh, like I I smiled for the first time or I was happy because I was just holding so much grief and so much loss. And what was interesting is like I could resonate with people on stage, but when taken out of that environment and put into like the real world, I felt like a fish out of water. Because I just, all I kept thinking was like, when am I going to have a baby? When am I going to have a baby? Is this fertility program? Is, is this IVF going to work? Oh my God, I'm bleeding. I just had a miscarriage. Like, you know, it's, it was just like every, I was living a trauma and it would, it was almost like a sick joke, right? You know, get a TED talk, lose a baby, right? Sell a book, lose a baby, right? Introduce Obama, lose a baby, right? It was like anytime anything good was happening would come with so down. much. Yeah. And part of it became a game like, oh, okay, yeah, I can get up on stage. I may be bleeding right now, but I can get on TV. It became almost like a thing I would do with my mind. A psychological challenge. I remember reading Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She said that she got the call that she was nominated for two Emmys. 10 minutes before she got the call that she had breast cancer. And she was just like, I give up. That's life. It's like the carousel, right? It's like one thing goes. And also it's interesting what you're saying about your own kind of trauma. And obviously you're holding so much, but it sounds like, and I am not a therapist, but I just had a sort of a session and a reading with someone who said, I don't think you've ever been in your body. Like it's very easy to keep everything up here. You can intellectualize everything and you can see how maybe that trauma is helping other people, but to really feel it and let yourself absorb the emotion of it. And it's kind of like even the experience we both just recently had, listen, it's not limited to the two of us. Obviously, like you said, re-entry is going to be hard, but I think it's like people are tapping into their feelings and actually experiencing emotions in a way that we never have before. And I don't even like having feelings. No, me neither. But you're right. I think this moment has put us more in our feelings, whether we like it or not. Why do you think that is? Because we just have no other distractions? I think that this has been an incredibly scary and traumatic experience. But I do feel like in my own way, number one, I've kept everything afloat for my kids. My kids haven't gone to school in over a year. I try to normalize everything. So I don't really let myself get too absorbed because of all the reasons that you said. I think kids follow a lot more of how you act and how you behave than what you say. And then also there are so many women who are in such terrible situations right now that I feel like an asshole saying anything about my own situation, even though I've been at home working from home for over a year with two kids. I have a roof over my head and we don't have a food scarcity issue and other things. So I think it's like I've intellectualized the experience. I can't feel too badly for myself, but I think we have a devastating amount of loss and this is totally unprecedented. I think the rug's been pulled out in a lot of ways. It, it's been like the final straw, I think, of the last few years coming. I think we're all like at our limit. No, I think we're at our breaking point. We're at our breaking point. So yeah. we're going to talk about Girls Who Code. And obviously this was during your time when you were visiting schools and you saw all the inequity in terms of girls and who was signing up for computer classes and engineering. And it goes back to your whole theory of being brave and doing things that you don't feel that you're going to be great at. Was coding or tech on your radar before any of this? 
No. I mean, it was tech was on my radar just because as I was running, I was like the first candidate to use Square. And like, you know, I was like had a lot of techie people like that were part of my campaign. And so I was thinking about innovation. I was very plugged in to that community, but I wasn't a techie. Like I didn't major in computer science or and my parents were both engineers, but I was like a total, you know, model UN. I was in model UN too, Reshma. We're just oh, nerds. Yeah. Yes. I, that was my world. Right. right. But I was like, damn, you can make $120,000 as a software programmer. Like I was the daughter of refugees that had a job since I was 12. And like the idea I believed in marching into the middle class and that like I needed to go tell all these girls about this job that you can do and you can create and build things and you can make a lot of money. And so that was really the impetus for for Girls Who Code. And then over 10 years, we've taught 300,000 girls. We've reached, you know, half a billion people. We have just kind of scaled and built and, you know, I think inspired girls to be innovators and change makers and I feel blessed that you know you have a daughter I have two boys but like there's just something like I love girls I love their energy and I love the fact that they're just empathetic and they want to change the world and the world doesn't give them everything and I so it's just for me I guess being the role of like big sister right or right. or mom or whatever it is right to to all these girls has just been the biggest joy of my life yeah, it's almost like you have all these surrogate daughters, right? I do. In fact, I mean, yes. Like my husband tells me that all the time. You're like, like Oprah that. when she refers to her girls. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I have a little boy too, and and I can attest to all the differences between the two of them. Okay, so then cut to 2020. We all know how this goes. So as you wrote in The Atlantic, when we all went home last March and schools closed their doors, it didn't take long for the trend to emerge. Women, especially women of color, were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. I mean, you and I are talking about this, but as early as May, research showed that women were maxing out and burning out. Hi, ditto, same. We were bearing the brunt of childcare responsibilities, working a second, second shift. I had Eve Rodsky on the podcast, so I'm very second shift. And it was having measurable impact on our mental health. So... By September, obviously, the trend is a full-blown crisis. As you said, we have had more than 2 million women leave the workforce at a rate of four times that of men. And one in four women was considering downshifting their careers or leaving the workforce due to COVID. We all know all the reasons. But tell us a little bit about what prompted you to take action and then to also take out a full-page ad in the New York Times imploring for President Biden to do something about it. Well, I mean, look, I think in the beginning of the pandemic, I had a, I had a baby via surrogate. So he was, Cy was a couple of weeks old. I was really looking forward to actually taking maternity leave and like bonding with him and taking a break for the first time. And then COVID hit. And I found myself having to end my maternity leave when, when Cy was a couple of weeks old, homeschool my five-year-old, save my global, you know, my nonprofit from a global pandemic because the first nonprofits to be hit were women and girls. And so many of my sister organizations shut down and, you know, I got COVID-19 and it barely registered. Wow. My liver essentially failed. I had acne on my face since I was 16. And every night I was just like barely surviving. And again, I was one of the privileged ones. I had a little bit of help. I was able to work from home. You know, I had resources and I was still feeling that way. And every time I looked on Zoom, every woman looked exactly how I felt. And I think in the beginning, we were just kind of grinning and bearing it. And I think by September, when the schools didn't open, it was just too much. And I was like thinking, you know, well, someone's got to have a plan. Like, what's the plan? We've lost our labor market participation was is where it was in 1989. 
So 30 years of progress gone in nine months. And I understood that because for 10 years I had been tracking and working on gender parity in tech. And then so I knew the consequences of losing 30 years of job gains in nine months. And so again, I was waiting for someone to say something about it, to write something about it, to, you know, address it. So no one did. So I did, you know, when I first started with an op-ed in the Hill in, in December saying, we need a Marshall Plan for moms. And here's what I think that should be in the Marshall Plan. Boom, 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 boom. And then, you know, we followed it up with an ad with like 50 women from like Gabriel Union, Tammy Schumer, to Aishin Poo, to, you know, activists, to Minnie Grossman, to, you know, CEOs who all were like, yes, we don't work for free. And, you know, mothers are not, you know, America's social safety net. And, you know, the rest is really history. And it's, you know, since we launched the campaign, we did another one with 50 men. You know, I saw led that, by allies. We had uh, two resolutions introduced in the U.S. Congress, one by Grace Ming, Congressman Ming, and, and, and the other ones by Senator Schumer and Duckworth for a Marshall Plan for Moms resolution. You know, we have a bill introduced in the L.A. City Council. We have a bill introduced in New York State. Bills being worked on, you know, in cities across the country. And just, again, we've inspired like a national global conversation about unpaid labor. What are the next steps? Like, how can anybody who's listening, who wants to get involved, support, get involved on any yeah. regional levels? Yeah. So sign the petition, mm-hmm. which is on marshallplanforms.com. And look, I think that right now, I want to take mothers from, from rage to hope. And I know right now it's a lot to be like, hey, come march for paid leave or march for affordable daycare or join me in a, in a protest to open up schools five days a week. If you're ready for that, do that. But, you know, the second piece is really kind of taking a step back and saying, how did we become America's social safety net and martyrs? And how do I change that? How do I change that in my home? How do I change that in my workplace? How do I change that in society? I think the other thing is, is a a lot of like feminists think like, all right, well, you got to change your husband's behavior, your partner's behavior. I'm like, great, you're giving me another job. And And the reality is, is being locked up with our partners, they saw what we do. They saw us do the extra laundry. They saw us buy the groceries. They saw us do all the homeschooling and nothing changed. And the reason why nothing changed is not because you don't have a plan at home, but because that work is unrespected and unseen. And so that's why they don't do anything. And so it's not simply going to shift just by asking them to more. We have to shift. We have to drop the ball. We have to stop apologizing. We have to like let shit just fall apart, right? And let them pick up the pieces. On a practical level, though, are you talking about within the home or are you talking about the fact that women who work outside of the home? So, right. So if I work outside of the home and my workload has not minimized at all, in fact, I would say that I have worked more in this last year than ever before, because I think everybody is obviously pivoting, shifting, reacting. Then on top of that, like I said, I have two kids in school who I've been Luckily, they have a school program. They're on Zoom. I have a five-year-old boy. I don't need to explain to you that that kid doesn't know what Zoom means. He doesn't want to stay on there. The amount of snacks that he thinks are appropriate within an hour is outrageous. The amount of weight that our children So am I dropping the ball within my home and then I'm suffering? Or am I dropping the ball with my outside work? I think all of it. Mm -hmm. So one, I think at home, I stopped doing homework. Mm -hmm. I just don't do it. I don't turn it in. I don't have time for it. And it's not my job. And so I'm just not going to do it. You know, we have a, a 13 month old and my husband has uh, nights and I have mornings. And so at seven o'clock, I know if I'm sitting there downstairs watching Netflix, he's going to be like, Hey, can you grab the diaper? Will you warm up the bottle for me? Mm-hmm. No, I go for a walk. I leave. I have a drink by myself. 
the bar downstairs. Yes, nice. But I, I disappear, right? Me, meaning like I'm someone who, if I don't work out in the morning and I literally can hear my baby, mom, mom, banging on the door. Now I could just be like, oh shit, no. I just put those Bose headphones on, turn up the volume and keep like, it's just, I can't, mm-hmm. right? So like you have to base, you have to. You have to, have to, have to. I'm not saying that it's not easy and that there aren't consequences for it, but I can't keep being the martyr and the consequences just can't keep being my mental health. And so that has been a really, really, really important shift. I know with, for me and my partner, I can have 20 fights about this, but like he will change on his, it's, it's, it's almost more painful for me to just keep having that conversation. So people who have changed their partners, God bless you. But like the honest truth is most of us can't. And we should have to stop lying about it, right? Which is like, I'm so lucky I have a, I have a husband who does half. No, you don't. None of us do. 86% of the work at home, whether you're in Zimbabwe or New York, is done by mothers and done by women. It's just a fact. And so let's get back to how that's going to change. But I don't think it changes with me in couples therapy. Just me saying. Secondly, you know, I think at work, I think that we are really going to have to figure out how we take that mom's populist rage and ask for the things we want. Too many mothers are getting gaslit right now. Too many mothers are losing their promotions because what's happening. And when you do a call, I'm sure there's moms and there's dads on your meeting, zoom meeting. And we're, what's happening with us. We're getting interrupted. Our kids are walking in. Can I have a muffin? My nose is running. Can you wipe my butt? Like whatever it is, 20 things, right? That Sean and Cy come in and bug me on and Nahal locks the door. My husband locks the door. Like there is no, like I've never, ever, ever in like right. so a year. Is of- that that socialization? Is that a maternal, no, is that I, an I, actual I, instinct? What's the, what is the issue there? Why are we doing this? I think that they put a lot, I think our husbands put a lot more like, don't you dare come in here. Mm-hmm. And we're, we feel guilt. Fine. You can bother me or we'll walk up. And so I don't think that we, I don't do you, I don't put a sign on the door saying, don't you dare come in here. I can't talk about this because Literally, I have an office that I'm in right now. And in February, we said, you know what? It's going to feel like a much more sort of open air kind of plan. Let's remove this door so that it has some flow. I have no fucking door on my office. The one room... So yeah, I have to leave the dog door open sometimes on calls so that they can run in and go to the bathroom because of the, you know, there's no words for what the last year has looked like. Your shit shit is just messy. Like me. Yeah. My point is, is that it's messy for us. And I don't think that there aren't consequences for that messiness. We empathize with each other, but like the men who are mostly still all the fucking managers are like, oh no, no. I'm going to, that single guy, great. Bring him in here. And there's no. Yeah. And I do think that the disservice is often other women too, who are just like, you know, you, how you see people sort of over the year. And I can actually see the decline through the zooms sometimes. Oh, for sure. People of people. And, and listen, let's be honest. Like I think about this all the time. I, I don't know if you were going here, but like I've take this class called fitting room and there's this amazing instructor, his son, his five year old son, always interrupts the workout and like every, you know, then he starts weightlifting him and all the women are clapping and oh, You're so like, cute, no, no, so cute. No, so, no I don't probably, but, but I often think like, what if he was a woman? Mm-hmm. I hundred percent people would be complaining. 
hundred percent. This is distracting. I can't work out. Her baby's interrupting. Like, and it's just like, to me, I think, and it wouldn't just be men, it'd be women too. Right. And so I think that we just have to see the double standard and change that. And so my point is, is all you, everybody's worrying it vaccinated. It's going to be all good. No, it is not. It is going to get worse before it gets better. And so they're coming for us when we get to work, meaning, and we better come for them first. We better get organized, get it together, see what's about to happen. Careful what you ask for. You know what I mean? And if you ask for it, you know, ask for everyone to be subject to the same rules. You know, you, I don't know if we want a world where it's optional to come into the office two days a week because you know what? They're not coming in because our partners are going in because they don't want to do the stuff around here. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like we need to see ahead, you know, 10 months like, OK, what is what's going to happen when we make this decision and plan for that? We need to see into the future. Do you think, though, that there's been some benefit like you're at a stage of your life where you're sort of acknowledging this, too, right? Like there's a whole kind of holistic experience. I'm not just someone who's focused on her career. You are not only fighting for all these, these women and these moms who are going through something, you are that person. So the bifurcation that we had before where it was kind of like, you didn't even want to acknowledge that you had a child because God forbid, like you said, forget about a workout class in any other facet of your professional life that you would be judged in some way if you were not a hundred percent on top of your game that somehow that had seeped in and had distracted you. Do you think that moving forward, there is a little bit more of a, a holistic understanding of someone's life where it's like, I'm not just this. I have all these other facets of my life that require my time, my attention, my energy. So we have to allow for that. I feel like that's a bigger part of the message that you're also saying too. It's not just financial help. We need to have reasonable expectations for people and their time. We do, especially for those of us like, look, I mean, I'm 45 with two kids under the age of six, right? And I'm in in the height of my career. And so part of the thing that I was doing before COVID was I would bring my son, Sean, everywhere. If I was on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, there's my son giving a TED Talk. There he is. Being at Harvard, there he is, right? Like, it's like he would come everywhere with me. I'm not going to say, it was stressful. And I had done that then to show the young women in my life, like, you don't have to choose. Meaning like you can, you can basically have your, have your career, have your kids, but it's messy, right? So it's not like you're have it all thing, but it's messy, but you can have it, you know what I mean? And don't choose and like make people adjust for you. Just getting people at conferences to get someone to watch my son or to be comfortable with him being sitting on my lap when I was giving a talk and to not complain and not feel distracted. And because I had the power, mm-hmm. right? I think we have to kind of do that still, right? Meaning we don't have to now all of a sudden hide our kids, But we have to like, when we see discrimination or we see ourselves getting penalized for it, we have to call it for what it is. And we have to recognize that we live in the world as it is and not the world that we want it to be. And the world that as it is, is we're doing the vast majority of the caretaking. So let's just make that world a little bit more easier to manage while we're trying to work on the other ones to do more. Because I think that's going to take some time. And I think that that also comes with real policy change. Like you shouldn't be able to get a promotion at Goldman Sachs if you had a kid unless you took paternity leave. That should be part of your compensation, part of your performance review. Because you know what? You can't offer it at the same time, have a silent culture that says if you take it, you're not going to be Right. Well, it's the same thing that you're saying about not, not going back into the office and then you're penalized because you did. Right. Exactly what's going to happen. 
Well, I'm grateful for all the work that you are doing to make the world more like we want it to be. And I'm excited, Reshma, to see what your next move is. And I'm sure that it will be something incredible. So knowing what you know, and I know you don't really buy into this, but what would your having it all look like today? Freedom, peace, celebrating the wins, you know, always being challenged. Well, it sounds like what you're doing for yourself, right? You had to double down. You were already feeling anxious and you said, why not shift my whole career narrative at this point too? I'm so grateful you made the time today. Where can people follow along with everything that you're doing if they don't follow you? Well, follow me at rushmasajani.com on Insta, Twitter, LinkedIn, and sign the petition at marshplanformoms.com. Already done. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Having It All and Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.